Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. As Brian said, welcome to Gospel Community Church. Also, last night, got to celebrate uh, Dan Musin and Megan Hooley getting married. And so, yeah. It was fun to, to be there and to be a part of that, but uh, I, I left. I have this gift with weddings, it's supernatural really, to where I find a way to leave before dancing takes off. So I can share that, yes. I can share that with you guys if you guys would like some tips. But uh, just to save you guys from any scarred images that you can't unsee, it, it, was, it was an honor to get to be there to perform their ceremony. But I left stating this, is that I don't just love our church family. I was gone last week. I really like our church family. And, and I think those are two different things. Like I like the people that make up our church family. I like the people that were there. I like spending time with them. It's just a really fun, awesome group of people to be around. And so it was a great time, great, great experience and a great celebration. So I'm thankful for you guys. Anytime I'm gone, I miss you guys. I miss our family and I love being back here. So it's good to be back. It's good to be preaching the word. This morning, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew is one of the Gospels. It's the first Gospel in the New Testament of the Bible. And we're continuing on in a series this morning titled The Call. And we're looking at what Christians are called, uh, not just called from and, 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 and called uh, into, but we are called, uh, looking at what Christians are called to do. We understand that our relationship is not earned through our behavior with God, that we receive our relationship status as a child of God by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But we also understand that the way in which we live has an impact on our relationship with Him and with others. Christians are called to be set apart. So we're looking at what Christians are called to. And we've looked at different things. We've looked at Christians are called to spiritual maturity, to holiness last week, to prayer, to evangelism. And today we're looking at the Christians are called to make disciples. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. If you can turn toward the end of the Gospel there, we're going to be in verses 16 through 20, where it's titled The Great Commission. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into it. Matthew 28, 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there are many things to celebrate this morning we thank you for a wedding celebration. We thank you for the picture of the ultimate uh, wedding that we have in Christ. I pray that right now you would slow us down, that you would calm us down. I know that there are people in this room that are just going through a lot, maybe in a difficult season. We're praying and asking right now that you would calm us, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, that you would correct us. Fathers, we open your word. We praise you that we get to open up the the word, your words, and we have a God who speaks, who communicates, and you want to speak and communicate to us this morning. You've given us your word as a tremendous gift. Teach us about you through it. Teach us about the gospel through it. But whatever's going on and whatever's taking place this morning or outside of these walls, I pray for uh, your presence to calm us and to give us ears to hear, for us to listen for ourselves, not for the people sitting to our left and right, but for ourselves. 
We pray this morning you would speak to us through your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this paradox that takes place in many sports. And, and this paradox is this, that, that generally in sports you are called to be tenacious and to give it your all, but you're also called to be calm and relaxed. So you need to be tenacious and work hard and be zealous and give it your all, but you also need to learn what it looks like to be calm and to relax and to breathe. I grew up in a family that isn't the best at doing this. <laughs> my mom might kill me if I share this, but my family generally panics in a time of crisis, which creates more panic. And so if you sneeze, we take things to the worst extreme. A sneeze probably means influenza, but most likely the pneumonia or pneumonia. If you break a bone, then it's probably extremely severe and your arm might need to be amputated, something like that. These are extremes, but family in these situations is, is, is extreme. There's a lot of panic, which creates a lot of panic. What helps in these situations is when there's a calm presence. But what also has to happen is that someone has to work through these situations. So someone just can't stop and, and stop doing anything. People need to continue to work through this, but learn what it looks like to stay calm. And in sports, that's a lot of what you do. In football, no matter what it is, you have to be tenacious, you have to be zealous, you have to work hard, but you have to also learn what it looks like to breathe and to relax. Our bodies don't naturally do that. It's, it's a paradox. Know from the, uh, the sport of jiu-jitsu, which is grappling, that oftentimes people are screaming at you to uh, to go harder, to work more, to do something, but they're also screaming at you at the same time to relax and to breathe. Again, we don't naturally do these things. And so oftentimes what, what happens is you can see people even in sports that can last longer in the sport or last longer in a match or just last longer with uh, how, what, whatever realm they're competing in. Why? It's not always because they're in greater shape. It's because Sometimes they just know how to relax and breathe and stay composed in the situation that they're in while they're continuing to do the same work that other people are doing. And so the main point for us today, which is a bit of a paradox, as I say it, is to stay settled and go. So those four words, if I want you to walk away and remember it, something, it's stay settled and go. So I hope to unpack that because again, I, I know that doesn't make sense. And, and, and again, to use a sports analogy, a lot of what we're called to do there doesn't make sense. It's something that in a sense we have to train our bodies to do. Let's unpack this. And I'm just gonna say this up front. As we look at the Great Commission, as we look at these verses, we're going to do this by zeroing in on these verses and really honing in on them. And, and, and in a sense, going in with a microscope. But then what we're also gonna do is we're gonna pull back and go with a very broad view and see how this specific passage fits inside of Matthew's gospel, sits inside of the Bible as a whole. And to see that all Christians are called to make disciples. We all have the same job description. No one has a different job description. We all have the equality through what we are called to do. Let's look at verse 16. Now, that's a conjunction, so it's there for a reason. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. What is happening and why are they in Galilee? Here's what's going on in this specific passage. Is that Jesus Christ, the one they had spent the last three years with, just died. And he didn't die a normal death. He died a vile criminal death on the cross. 
But what the disciples thought is that this Messiah, this hero, this Jesus, he was going to be the one that was going to overturn the Roman government. And in fact, some of the disciples were asking to sit at his right hand and to sit at his left hand, thinking that was going to take place right now on earth and he was going to overtake Rome. So where we find ourselves in this narrative and in this story is the disciples are back in Galilee. And Galilee is where Jesus met them. Jesus, this is where Jesus met Peter, where Jesus called Peter, where they were fishing. So they just spent three years traveling around with Jesus, believing that he was the Messiah, but a misunderstanding of what that looked like. And now all of a sudden, they are back in Galilee. What are they doing? They went back to their normal lives. They went back to their normal jobs and they went back to their normal way of living. Why? Because the person that they put all their hope, all their faith, and all their trust in ended up like everyone else that opposed the Roman government. If you opposed Rome, you would be destroyed. If you tried to lead a following, you would be destroyed. And so now Jesus was just like anyone else that Rome had destroyed. He was dead. So this man they had put all their hope in, all their trust in, died. And so they went back to their normal lives. And you would have to understand if you put yourself in their situation, they believed that this was the Messiah. And so now they had given their whole lives or their past three years of their lives, I should say, to, to this man. And now he's gone. And so they're grieving and they're shattered. And in a lot of ways, what's going on here gives us hope. Because this is a Easter message. This is a story of resurrection, of Christ's resurrection. And there are people in this room that are shattered this morning to various degrees. There are people that walked in here shattered, that are going through stuff, that are hurting and that are grieving. And what does this show us? It shows us that God has a plan for shattered moments in our lives and that God is in control. God brought about the greatest light out of the greatest darkness that an innocent man was slain on a cross. But after that, he rose. But for right now, where they find themselves as they are roaming around Galilee, hurting and grieving and shattered, not understanding and trying to make sense of everything that has just taken place. And then, three days later, Jesus appears. But he appears to two Marys, as we see uh, prior to this in chapter 28. But then I love what Jesus says. In chapter 28, verse 10, he says this, Then Jesus said to them, talking to both Marys, he said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Jesus told them even before this, he said, Hey, just so you know, I'm going to be struck, and when I am, that you guys are all going to scatter. He told them, he's like, you guys are all going to flee. That's going to happen. Jesus knew that would happen. And he says that I'm going to go before you into Galilee, and I will call you there. What I love about this is that he calls them brothers. Jesus, in the midst of being betrayed, of having the men that he spent the most amount of time with, ran away from him in the darkest hour of his life. And what does he do? He tells both Marys, he says, hey, go and tell my brothers to come to Galilee. Tell my brothers to come to Galilee. That's what he calls them. And there they will see me. And so now this message reaches them in verse 16, and now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. He had always told them that's what's going to happen. And here's what we need to see. We have to see this, is that Jesus's commitment to the disciples was never based upon their commitment to him. 
Jesus was never saying that if you stay committed to me, I will stay committed to you. It is always God's faithfulness and his commitment to us. So here we have a picture of this. We don't see the faithfulness of the disciples displayed. We see the faithfulness and the fierce commitment and love of Jesus Christ for those that he's committed himself to. And he calls them brothers. Honestly, I don't know that that would ever be my response for people in my darkest hour of life that just ran out on me. But that's what we see with Christ here. Verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This word doubt here is only used one other time in our Bible. It's actually when Peter got out of the boat and then he took his eyes off Jesus, he hesitated, and then he sank. So that's the same word that's used here for doubt. This provides a a, a tremendous level of comfort for me. That, that Matthew did not have to include this detail, but he did. That when, when, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. They saw, so this is where we step in the story again. Jesus is resurrected. He's the only man who's ever gone into the grave and walked out alive and stayed alive. He's the only one that's ever overcome death. He is alive. We serve a risen king. In Christianity, what we have is something that no one else has. We have a king that's resurrected from the dead who is still alive. We have an empty tomb. And so here you have a resurrected Lord appearing to people, to the 11, and their response is some worshiped, some doubted. Why is that comforting? One, our Bibles are tremendously honest. But here's what we need to see. Some doubted, some hesitated. Why? We need to remember because commonly when we talk about making disciples that the number one thing that people say is I just don't feel qualified to do it. I just don't feel equipped. I don't feel like I'm, I'm the right person for the job. I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Is that we need to actually see this and see that some saw him, some, uh, they saw him, some worshiped and some doubted. We're not talking about scholars or the most solid men. Jesus had fishermen and Jesus had men who were really tough as long as the card stacked up for them like Peter. I have your back. But as soon as the odds don't look to be in his favor, he's out. And in fact, he, he, he was scared of a little girl around the fire, right? When he denied Jesus. And then he denied Christ three times. We need to remember this and these are the men that Christ chose. Not overly qualified people, but people that saw the resurrected Lord and they doubted. I think Philip would have drove many conservatives crazy with his Hellenistic ways. Thomas was a doubter. John went from self-righteous man of wanting justice to a man who wrote a ton about love. But these were the men. Some doubted, some worshipped. The other reason it gives me hope is this, is that oftentimes the other response that people say is, I don't know everything that I need to know, and I don't feel like I have all the answers. Even when we look at, at the miracle of resurrection, there's a lot of pushback to that, right? And so Christians say, I don't feel like I have all the arguments. I'm not a great apologist. I don't know all these things. And I would say that people literally saw the risen King, Jesus Christ, and they doubted. Which means this, 
that you don't have to have all of the answers. You can have a miracle sitting in front of your face and you can still doubt. Why? Because at the end of the day, it is not on you to open up people's eyes, to open up people's hearts, and open up people's ears to hear, to see, and to receive who Jesus Christ is. God and God alone does that. We have just a prime example of it right here. There's people that see him in person. They're like, I'm doubting. I have a close friend of mine and I was texting with him the other day in, in light of this sermon. And uh, he is, he's an atheist and uh, his nickname is Diesel. So we'll call him by his nickname Diesel. I think that's a self-given nickname. So it's not legit if you give yourself a nickname. But uh, I asked Diesel about this and I said, hey, from your perspective as an atheist, I'm actually just gonna pull up the conversation so I don't butcher what he said after making fun of his nickname. I said, from your perspective as an atheist, couldn't they have shut down the entire movement of Christianity by just simply showing people the body? Like, couldn't they have just showed everyone, here's the body of Jesus Christ. You guys are making a big deal. He's resurrected. Here's the body. Sorry, we shut it down, right? And so he said, uh, he said, I think he was in a coma. Okay. So in a sense, what he's saying is this, is that Jesus suffering the beating that he took, which actually a lot of people didn't even survive from that, went on to the cross where he suffered and people don't survive that. And then at the end of his death, a, prof a professional executioner put a spear in him and made sure he was dead. But let's just say that somehow he's survived and he's went into the tomb a massive stone is rolled in from him, and, and, and in this state of barely being alive, he just rolled the stone out of the way and came out and then convinced everyone, I've overcome death. I would assume he would look very haggard. That's the response. And so our conversation continued, and these conversations continue. At the end of the day, there's he, he said that, in a sense, he could see how, yes, it could have happened, and that he could be resurrected, but what did he do? He doubted. I've heard stories like uh, the body was drug off by dogs. If you know anything about Jewish culture, they were not going to bury a shallow grave to where a body that was considered unclean would be drugged through the city. There's all these arguments, and we feel the need as Christians to provide all these arguments. But you know what Paul concluded? That I will preach Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to come up with all of the arguments. I'm not going to know all the response to, to the resurrection. I'm not going to know all this. What I'm going to do, in a sense, Paul said, is I'm going to preach Christ and him crucified. Because at the end of the day, people will doubt, but it's God who opens the eyes and the ears and the hearts of mankind to save. The last reason it's encouraging for me that some doubted is that growth happens. People experience the resurrected Christ. Thomas doubted. Some of them doubted, but do you know what? The apostles went on to be fierce men who lived for Christ the King and for his kingdom. Because growth does happen. Though they started off doubting, and that might be where some of you are at, they grew. I think there's a sense of false humility that takes place in our culture today. And this false sense of humility is for people to say that, that it's more humble to say, I don't know about this or I don't know about that. It's just not, it's more humble to never land anywhere. And I just don't think that's actually true humility to stay at a spot where you're wishy-washy and always doubting. These men did grow in their faith. 
And I believe that through Christ and experience a resurrected king, we can expect to grow in our faith, in our trust in him. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. He starts off with this, it's called an indicative, but it's a statement of truth. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now there's a sandwich. We have two truths and we have these commands in the middle, which are called imperatives, starting in verse 19. He says, go, these are the commands, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, here's the other truth. I am with you always to the end of the age. So truth, all power and authority has been given to me, command, and then truth again at the end. I will be with you always to the end of the age. Power and authority scares us, if we're being honest. Power and authority scares me because I've seen the abuse of it. We've seen totalitarian regimes that have come up through men that are power hungry. And so the word power or authority scares us. But let's not forget this. It's not like all of a sudden Christ in this moment had all power and all authority given to him right now. Christ always had all power and all authority for eternity. Before the foundations of the world, he's always had all power and authority. He wasn't waiting to get out of kingdom so he could come to earth and then live and then die and then raise from the dead and now all of a sudden have all power and authority. He's always had all power and all authority. He's always had it. But let's not forget what Christ did with his power and his authority. Christ touched lepers. Christ washed feet. Christ served. Christ sacrificed. The most powerful human ever in all the universe displayed his power and authority by dying a vile criminal's death on the cross through sacrifice. That's how Christ showed his power and his authority. Sacrifice. At the center of Christianity is the most powerful man in all the the universe. But at the center of Christianity is the most powerful man exercising his full power and authority by laying his life down to rescue people, sinners, and give them the very thing that he has, a relationship with God the Father. In Christianity, we have a Trinitarian God, which means this, that love preceded so love came before power. So the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been loving each other for all eternity. And they actually created out of their love. So power came after their love. And all other religions of the world that are monotheistic, one God, what happens is this. Is there's this all-powerful one God who doesn't have this communal relationship of love. And then what he does is he creates out of power and then his love comes after that. Not in Christianity. The Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been loving each other for eternity, and they created out of that. He used his power and his authority to love, to serve the poor. What would you do with all power and all authority? Would you live a homeless ministry? Would you let people rip out your beard? Would you allow yourself to be beaten and to be disrespected by the very creatures you created? Because that's what Christ did with all power and all authority. He subjected himself to torture. So when we read power and authority, what we have to do is read that in light of who Christ is, his very nature, and what he displayed here on this earth. Yes, he has all power and all authority, but he's demonstrated what he's done with his power and his authority. I also think that we struggle with power and we struggle with authority because we want to live autonomous lives doing what we want to do. 
So Christ, all, so Christ does say clearly and plainly that I have all power and all authority. So the statement that I'm about to say comes from the person that has all of this. Here it is. What does he say? Go, make disciples, baptize, and then teach. So with all his authority, he's commissioning you to go, to build, and to do the work of a priest. We'll get to that in just a minute, but that's what he says. He says, go. He doesn't say stay. I love what Francis Chan says. He says, sometimes what we do when Christ tells us or gives us a command like go and make disciples is we say, well, what I've learned is I've learned all the different ways that you can say that. I've learned it in Greek. I've learned it in different languages. I've learned the syntax. I've learned what all this stuff means. And what Christ says is go. So it'd be like, and this is Francis Chan's analogy, as a parent, you tell your kids, go clean your room. And they say, I learned how to say I clean your room in three different languages. I've studied and I've learned the text. I've grown in an in-depth theology of all that that means. And he's saying, Jesus is just saying, go and make disciples. He's like, go clean your room. And he's saying, go. It's very simple. Go and make disciples of all nations, of all nations. Go into all the world, telling all people, all ethnicities, all different people groups about Christ, who he is and what he's done to reconcile people back to God. Go and do this. Not stay. He doesn't say, make sure you get discipled. He says, go and make disciples. Did you know that all Christians have the same job description? No matter where you are at, whatever you are doing right now. And I believe that oftentimes the reason we are not fulfilled in the careers and the things we are doing is because we have forgot that the ultimate purpose of why we are where we are is this. It's to make disciples. If you are a student, the reason you are there is to make disciples. When you graduate and go on into a career, the reason you are there is to make disciples. As a mom, a full-time mom, that is a, a hard and tremendous job. Your job and you're doing a great job of doing it to where you don't need to feel the guilt of doing more moms is your job is to make disciples. In fact, no one's discipling your children more than you are day in and day out. And when your kids grow up and maybe you go back into the workforce and maybe you don't, at that point, your, your, your job description is still to make disciples. Whether you're a student, whether you're a teacher, your job description is the same. All of us in Christianity have different gifts, different talents, different roles, but all of us have the same exact job description. Whether you are preaching, whether you're leading worship, whether you're doing setup, tear down, whatever you're doing, our job descriptions does not change. We are called to make disciples. And again, I think that sometimes we, we, we are not fulfilled in the careers that we are doing because we have lost sight of what Christ has called us to do. You are not there ultimately to get rich, to become a billionaire, to do all of these things. Money is not evil. These things are not bad. School is not bad. None of these things are bad. But your purpose of why you are where you are is to actually make disciples. And if we forget that, I think that it can lead us to a spot of emptiness. What is my purpose in life? I, it, God's word says it. Go make disciples. What does it look like? I think very practically, what does it look like? I think here's what it looks like so that we don't complicate it. I believe that what it looks like as disciples who make disciples is that we invite people into our messiness so people can see that we're imperfect, but that we worship a perfect savior. What, what it looks like for us to make disciples is for our Christian or non-Christian friends is we just point them to the king and to the savior, to Jesus. We just lift him up. We would do that with a Christian. We would do that with a non-Christian. It never changes what we do. We, we, we simply just lift up Jesus. That's what discipleship is. All across the board, we lift him up. We make him the hero. We point people to him. It's like our jobs as a Christian is just to go like this, always. I'm not the hero. And I think sometimes we don't make disciples because we don't feel like we're qualified enough. We don't feel like we have enough. 
the, the reality is we are not enough and that God doesn't actually need us. He wants us and has called us to make disciples. And the power is not in our abilities. The power is in the message of the gospel that he's given us. We rely upon that. We rely upon his spirit and we point to him. It's a beautiful thing, I think, for people to be welcomed into the messiness of our lives so we can go, see, I told you I wasn't the hero. I'm not perfect. Jesus Christ is. Let's look to him and let's do that together. What else does it say? Baptize. Baptize them. In two is actually the literal reading, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what does this mean? That we are called to baptize people, which means this. We, baptism is, is a symbolic picture of what has already happened. And so when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, he makes us new creatures, a new creation. He makes us holy and blameless and spotless and pure and perfect and righteous right? So what baptism is, is it symbolizes everything that Christ has already done inside of you. And so what you are doing in uh, baptism is baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you're baptized into this new family, your eternal family, with this new identity as a child in the family of God. So what he's saying, baptize people in that. uh, uh, Basically, baptism is this. It's like uh, on Facebook, when you get into a relationship and you go public, it's like that. I don't, I don't know how else to explain that, but it's a way for you to declare to the world that I am, I am Christ and he is mine. Then he goes on to say, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Notice the word all. He does not say teach people to, we t- don't teach people to observe uh, all that I have commanded you, not teach people to observe the things that you like in your Bible. So when we read our Bibles in our quiet times or in our devotional times, we, we are more prone to underline and highlight the things we really like to do. And, and so what he's saying is, is command all or obey that all of that I have commanded. So obey, obey the commands that you don't like to underline or highlight. Obey all of them and then teach them and teach people to obey them. Not just the ones that we like, but all of them. What, what, what are these commands? Well, we can read Matthew's gospel and see what Christ has commanded, but we can read the entire word of God and see what Christ has commanded. It's not a mystery. And our job is to teach people all that Christ has commanded. And then he closes in this, and he says, the greatest comfort, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is intended to be the tremendous comfort of the power and authority for what I'm going to tell you to do, I'm giving that. I, I, I'm commissioning you, but know this at the end, that I'm going to be with you always till the end of the age. That's what he says. Believe there are very practical things in what we've just looked at for us to do. To see ourselves as people that are called to make disciples. But I want you to know and to hear this and to understand this. That Christianity is not a religion of do it, it's a done. Christianity is not do, it's done. So you don't go and make disciples to become a disciple. Christ makes you a disciple by the grace of God, and then out of that, we naturally make disciples. So as, as we've looked at this and just zeroed in, what, what I believe that we need to do, and, and I will just say this up front, I might be more excited about what we're getting ready to look at than anyone else in the room, but I'm okay with that. But I believe that it's awesome and it's clear what Matthew is trying to do. He's trying to get us to see this from a bigger picture of what's going on inside of the entire redemptive narrative. So it's, it's okay just to zero in like we've done on this and talk very practically about what Jesus is calling us to do here. But I also believe that we need to see a big picture in all of the Bible of what is going on here. I believe that Matthew, a disciple and scribe, is trying to show us that. He's trying to lay out the structure of actually what's happening here. It's important that Jesus is on a mountain 
Because before this, Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? And before this, Jesus was on a mountain given the Sermon on the Mount. But if you actually look, and we have a slide for this, our Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible ends with Second Chronicles. That's the Tanakh ordering of the Old Testament. So our ordering in the way that our Bibles are structured is different. Same books, different ordering. But the way that the Hebrew Bible ends is with Second Chronicles. And you have to see this. Second Chronicles ends with this. I believe here's what Jesus is, is, is doing and showing, but, but, but here's what Matthew is conveying. He's trying to show this, that there is a true king on top of the mountain who is the true and better temple whose commission has never changed from the beginning of time. So there is a true king who is the true temple who is giving the same commission that God gave from the very beginning of mankind. It has not changed. And so the way that the Old Testament ends, and Matthew would have known this is this, 2 Chronicles 36, 23. Look at this. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me, here's the power and authority, all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. A house, that word is temple, tabernacle, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of his people, may the Lord God be with him. Let him go up. What is it? It's priestly work. It is temple work. It is building a temple. So here we have a king giving this commission to go and build a temple, to build a dwelling place for God. And if we go back into our Bibles more than we get to Exodus 25, 8 through 9, this slide for this. And let them, here's, here's Moses now. He's up on top of the mountain, right? And let them make a sanctuary for me, a temple, a tabernacle. That's what that is, that I may dwell. That, that, that word means settle in or stay settled. That I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. You shall make it. Jesus, on top of the, uh, on, while giving the Great Commission, what he's doing is he's giving us all the same job description that we are all called to build. Everyone in this room who uh, calls Christ the Lord and Savior is given the job description to be a builder. We are called to build. And here in 2 Chronicles, going back with Moses on a mountain, we see this call to build a temple. But let's go back to the very beginning of our Bibles to Genesis 1. Verse 28 says this, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So he's given this command and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In Genesis 2.80 says this, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed, that word placed means to stay settled. He placed the man whom he had formed. Please know and see this, that, 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 that God, what, what is going on here and what I want to see in just a minute, that uh, that Eden and from the very beginning, this was a temple and we are meant to see it as a temple and we are meant to see Adam and Eve as priests doing priest-like work. And, but you have to see this, that God builds this glorious temple and then he places Adam and Eve in it. He doesn't build this temple and say, work, now go get in the temple. He actually builds this temple and then he places them in it by his grace. Verse 15 says this, then the Lord took the man and put him again into the garden to cultivate it and keep it. That is priest-like work that's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to show what priests do. I want us to see this from Ezekiel. So 
we can have some proof that what is in Eden, that what is at the beginning is a temple. I won't read all of this because it's long, but I want us to see this. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, and the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of stones of fire. And in Genesis 2, we actually see this. The same language is used there. Talking about stones, talking about onyx. So what do we see? We see at the very beginning of our Bible, there's this temple. And we're meant to see that, 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 that God has built this cosmic temple. And then at the very end of our Bible, in Revelation, if we can turn there real quick, I'm wrapping this up. Revelation 21.3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tab- tabernacle of, of God is among them, the temple, and he, is, he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. What's going on? Here it is. That from the beginning, God created a temple. What, what did the temple symbolize? It was God's dwelling place with man. God, the creator of heaven and earth, has always wanted to dwell with man. Listen, please. Israel was not special in that they had a physical temple. They were special because they were God's people and God dwelt with them in this temple. The temple throughout the Old Testament was a place that God dwelt with his people. It was also the place where sacrifices were made. And there it's where atonement was made for sin so God could dwell with his people. And then in Matthew, as Jesus stands up on top of the mountain, 20 references in Matthew talk about the temple. 14 of those come from 21 to 28. What's being communicated? That on the cross, Jesus Christ, the center and the hero of Christianity, was the living temple, and the temple was destroyed. So at the temple in his body, sin was dwelt with, and atonement was paid. The sacrifices were paid by his blood. He was the temple, and he said in his life that, destroy me and destroy, or he said, destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. On the cross, the temple was destroyed. Three days later, what happened? Jesus rose. The temple was rebuilt to never be destroyed again. It cannot be destroyed. And what does this mean? It means this, that the temple was always God's dwelling place with sinful man and that was destroyed. It's no longer a physical body are a, a, a physical building like it was. It's now the actual physical body of Jesus to where we have a dwelling place with God's presence. So now the place that man dwells with holy God is through the person of Jesus Christ, the ultimate and true temple. That's who he is. And here's the thing, is that we don't work our way into his presence. We don't work our way into the temple. Actually, he places us, God does, by his grace, into the true and better temple of Jesus Christ. And there we are called to settle in and to stay and to dwell. As a Christian, you dwell in in God's presence. That's a gift that people wanted for centuries. We have access to God's presence through Jesus Christ. We actually dwell in Christ. We are settled in. That's where we remain. That's where we stay. And I'll end with this. At the beginning, I said that if you are an athlete or someone who plays sports, you are called to do the paradox. What you are called to do is you are called to stay settled. You are called to be calm, but you're also called to be tenacious. You know, as Christians, that what we are called to do is we are called to stay settled and we are also called to go. What does that mean? It means this. 
that Christ is building a kingdom and he's ushered us as broken people to take part in that work with the king. And we are called to go and we are called to do that. But the motivation is completely changed. Moses went up on top of a mountain to receive the law. Jesus went up on this mountain here having fulfilled the law. So he completely changed the motivation for Christians. We no longer do this work to get something from God. We partner in doing the work of God because of everything that Christ has already fulfilled for us. He changed the motivation. We are still called to go just like they were in Genesis, but now we go knowing that Christ has fulfilled everything and that he's hidden us in him. God has placed us in Christ. The motivation changed. The hardest thing for us to do will be like an athlete, and it's to do this, to stay settled into who we are as believers and as a child of God and in Christ and knowing that we are settled in him, but also to go and to live and to work out of that. But that's what we're called to do. Be a child of God and work out of that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ability to come into your presence and dwell there. I praise you that we can stay settled because of not anything that we do, but because of what Christ has done. Jesus, you are the true and better temple and the place that we dwell with God is through you. You were destroyed, but then you rose and you've given us the same work to do. And I pray that we'd be faithful in doing that work, but we would do it with a different motivation. In Jesus' name, amen.